0: It's my great joy to welcome you today to City Reach LA. My name is Josh Houston. I'm the pastor here. Uh, Last week, we started a new series for the month of March on the problem of sin. Our culture doesn't really like to talk about sin very much. Um, If you're paying attention, for a a postmodern society, talking about sin is a little taboo. Um, It can be even offensive. And, you know, when we look at this thing, though, Jesus talked about sin, his followers talked about sin, this thing talks about sin. So we're going to talk about sin this month. Um, Last week, I spoke on how we settle for sin, that at a fundamental level, um, sin is the destruction of wholeness. It loves to destroy what God has made whole. It's mindsets, it's behaviors, it's values, it's worldviews that break down the wholeness, the shalom that God intended for our lives. And sin convinces us that choosing destruction is worth it. It convinces us that choosing the breakdown of our wholeness will satisfy our souls so we settle for it. Today, I want to build on that. I want to slow down a little bit and sit with a very specific consequence of sin. Um, and it's a, it's a consequence I've found to be, it's one that Christians in the church generally suck at talking about. Sin is and causes the breakdown of wholeness, which means people are going to suffer. Suffering. What do we do with it? How do we respond to suffering? We must ask this because ours is a world in which people suffer. And people often look to the church for how to responsibly, responsibly deal with suffering, but the, the answers that are given, they tend to, p- to piss people off a little bit more than they help, generally. Our world is broken. Just watch CNN for 10 minutes. Just watch Fox News for 10 minutes. Just scroll on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram for 10 minutes, and you'll see how much humanity's brokenness is in need of Jesus. We're broken. Our wholeness is being destroyed, and that causes real people with real stories to suffer. So today, we're going to look at a well-known passage of Scripture, and I want to show you how Jesus deals with suffering and how that can inform a little bit of how we need to deal with it as well. Suffering happens every day. How do we respond to it? I want to preach a message this morning entitled Responding to to Suffering. Responding to Suffering. If you brought your Bible or your Bible app on your smartphone, or if you downloaded our church app, our new church app, there's a Bible link on that. Um, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11 Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of the New Testament. John chapter 11. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we have them on the table scattered throughout the room here. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those little things home with you. And if you're just plain lazy, I'll have the text up on the screen as well. It's okay, you know. To prep this story a little bit, um, some of of Jesus' favorite siblings, some of his favorite people were Lazarus Mary and Martha, and and this story in John chapter 11, Lazarus gets really sick, and Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. They're like, Jesus, he is really sick, and Jesus hangs out where he is a little bit too long, intentionally, and he eventually receives the news that Lazarus has died. So Jesus says to his disciples, "Let's go wake the guy up." And this is where we're going to jump in or pick up in verse 17. John chapter 11, starting in 17. On his arrival. Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany, this is the city they lived in, was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the, in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into this world. And, she, and, and she, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside the teacher's here, she said, and, it, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of, the said, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Let's stop there and let's kind of pull on this thread a little bit. As Jesus gets close, he learns that Lazarus has been laying in the tomb for four days. Four days. Why is this significant? It matters because Jesus probably intentionally stuck around a little bit longer because the Jewish superstition of the day was that a soul stays near its body for three days after it's dead. So Jesus wanted to make sure everybody knew this guy was gone. This guy's done. So after four days, there's absolutely no hope of reviving this guy. Martha hears Jesus is close. She runs out to meet him. She says, Lazarus wouldn't have died if you were here. And, you know, I know she's not showing complete and utter confidence in the person of Jesus in this moment. But I think her honesty is refreshing. Jesus, I'm going to shoot straight with you. I'm disappointed in your late arrival. Anybody ever said that to Jesus before? Jesus, I'm a little disappointed in your late arrival. I've said that many times. Jesus says, don't worry, he'll be up soon. Martha's like, I know, he'll be alive at the resurrection when everybody who believes in God's gonna be raised from dead." He's like, no, 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 no. Not, not just at the resurrection, I am the resurrection. And if anybody believes in me, even if they're dead, they're gonna be brought to life. Martha says, I believe, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the son of God. So Martha leaves, gets her sister. Mary comes back. If Jesus, Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died Words are remarkably similar to, his, to her sister here. Jesus responds, where did you lay him? They show him the tomb, and scripture says Jesus weeps. He weeps, so much so that the people watching, they comment, look how much Jesus loved this guy. Personally, I think this part of the story is striking. This scene reveals Jesus' deep humanity. He was truly a human being. One with deep emotions, real emotions, emotions that caused him to weep when his buddy died. But he's God, right? Yes. But one of the primary characteristics of God in the ancient world was objectivity. It was emotional distance. It was apathy. And in this moment, Jesus shows humanity that God feels as we do. That he meets us in our emotion and he feels with us. Let's keep reading. Jesus, once more, deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Take away the stone. But Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by by this time, there's a bad odor. He's been there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you that you have heard me I knew that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes, let him go. Okay, scripture says Jesus was once again deeply moved. Once again, deeply moved. And this one's interesting to dig into. The the word more literally communicates he snorts with anger like, like kind of like a horse snorting this there's this trouble there's this fury behind it i want to make the noise but i don't want to make the noise <sighs> like whatever that sounds like that that like grunting mm. jesus's compassion in this moment appears to piss him off death i'm so sick of you you're not taking this one he says move the stone Move the stone from the entrance of the tomb. Martha's like, that's gross, Jesus. Lazarus was stinky when he was alive. He's four days dead. The dude's going to reek right now. People likely thought Jesus was so taken with grief. He just wanted to see his friend one more time. Jesus responds, you want to see the glory of God or not? Move the stone. He looks to heaven and he says, Father, thank you that you've heard me. Let's show them what we can do. Lazarus... Come out. That's power. Lazarus, come out. Not some elaborate performance. Jesus simply talks to Lazarus as though he lived. Lazarus, get out of the place where the dead people live because you're not one of them. Come here. And I always wonder if he needed to specifically call out Lazarus. Because if he just said, come out, all the dead people would have just started walking. Right? So he singles one out. <laughs> Lazarus, come out. <laughs> this is power we're dealing with. Lazarus, come out. And like a mummy, Lazarus just starts hobbling out of the tomb, wrapped up. And then he says, take the grave clothes off of him. And that part always piques my interest because Jesus doesn't miraculously untie him. He asks the people to help. Jesus does what only God can do, and then he asks for the people's cooperation in the rest of his deliverance. That's a different sermon. The Lazarus story is such a great narrative, but what I want to focus on and focus in on here today is Jesus' response to his friend's death. What we're talking about here is the suffering of Jesus. And I know it's easy to jump straight to. if you're going to talk about the suffering of Jesus, you talk about the cross. Sure. Getting murdered is a more obvious kind of suffering but anyone in in here ever get murdered? Yeah, me neither, right? So let's get a little bit more nuanced. Anybody ever experienced the death of a loved one? Yeah. What did you experience? You experienced grief. Grief. Sin destroys our wholeness, which causes us to suffer, and grief is God's gift to us to walk us through suffering, to companion us through suffering. And in this story, Jesus sees the pain that death has caused a village. He sees the destruction of wholeness in this place, that that destruction has had its way. Even though he knew it was coming, even though he had a plan to transcend it in the end of the story, he still found himself overwhelmed with grief, and he wept. Everyone suffers. And the pain of that suffering, the grief of that suffering is relative to the person This is why it's not helpful to compare suffering to each other. Everyone suffers, and we experience suffering in ranges. So sometimes the suffering directly affects you. You get divorced. Someone you love dies. You get fired from a job that you loved and you need. A physical illness tears your body apart. Sometimes the suffering happens to somebody you know someone you deeply love, someone you deeply care for, and they're going through something gut-wrenching, and that wrenches your gut because you're part of that. And sometimes the suffering happens to someone you've never met before. You read a story about a shooting at a high school, and you feel it. It, it opens your heart to this hollowness, to, to a barrenness. It's like the center of you is being haunted with loss, the suffering could be yours, it could be in your family, it could be in your church family, it could be across town, it could be across the globe, yet you feel it. And this is what's so crucial to grasp about suffering, is that it's felt. Suffering exists in a realm beyond intellect. It doesn't bypass intellect, but it's not bound by it either. Suffering exists beyond it. It's beyond intellect. Let me give you something, an example of something beyond intellect. My favorite song is U2's With or Without You. Anyone? Love, love, love the song. Now, let's say you've never heard the song. Let's say you live in a hole. Somebody should smack you because you've never heard the song. But let's say you've never heard the song before. And I'm like, I'm going to try to explain the song to you. I might say it's, it's in a 4-4 four, four time signature. It was written in the key of D. It has this every breath you take by the police kind of feel to it, right? There's this slow drawing build with the drums. Eventually, he's hitting everything he's got. The edge is carrying the riff on the electric guitar. Bono's singing his heart out. I can tell you all of that. But you'd probably say, that sounds nice, Josh. It sounds like a great song. I've never heard the song. Trying to describe a song with words is a little bit like trying to comprehend pain with intellect. It's just a different nature. It, it's, it exists in a different dimension. When you ask questions about suffering, you don't ask with your brain. You ask with your gut. Suffering exists in a space beyond the, in the intellect, beyond words, beyond information. And sometimes the pain is so great, there's nothing to say. Sometimes we feel the compulsion to rush in. We just want to rush in with words to make sense of what's going on, to explain it away, maybe even defend God. But in reality, sometimes there's just nothing to say. And this is why when Christians charge into suffering with Bible verses and bumper stickers, cliche things... Sometimes it's it's, a lot of times it's not helpful. God is on the throne. When He closes a door, He opens a window. Faith isn't praying for rain; it's bringing your umbrella. What is that? It actually makes things worse, because suffering exists beyond rationalization. And people always end up asking pro- the, the questions about the problems of suffering and evil in the world. That's like, it, it all, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times somebody has sat down for coffee. Okay, let's talk about evil. Let's talk about pain. Let's talk about suffering. We, I mean, that's like one of the go-tos. It troubles so many people because it's so terribly difficult to answer. Because some human experiences exist in a realm beyond words. And the best thing you can do is honor it with silence. So you feel it. So do we ignore the mind? Do we ignore the, the, the intellect? No. But let me show you how helpful this is. Here's a nice clean book answer for you. Here's a Bible school explanation for suffering. We suffer because we live in a fallen world. And the world is fallen because in order for a world to be a world, it has to be free to be a world. If every time something or somebody was going to suffer and some higher power jumped in to save that, it wouldn't be free to be a world. It would be a simulation. We have a spiritual enemy who hates us. And we make decisions and choices. We made some in the garden. We continue to make decisions and choices. And they continue to destroy us and break our world. For a human heart to be a heart, it also has to be free to hate. For a hand to be free to embrace someone, it also has to be free to make a fist and punch someone in the face. We live in a broken world, hence suffering. Try swallowing that after a miscarriage. We had a miscarriage last year. It broke us. It was devastating. I know a whole bunch of theology class answers for stuff like this. None of it helped. And if somebody would have told me, just look for the open window, I would have kicked him in the face. How, however helpful rational answers are, they just raise more questions. Any answer or explanation at its core is just going to take you deeper into the mystery of this whole thing. Or how about this? Why do people hurt each other? Because the human heart has a tremendous capacity for evil. It can easily be twisted. Okay, but what am I supposed to do with that? It's true, but it just raises more questions about why the human heart is actually like this. Even Jesus, while on the cross, in the midst of agony, in the midst of pain and suffering and abandonment, what does he do? His heart groans my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at the Psalms, these prayers, these poems, these songs in the middle of the Bible. They're filled with, where are you, God? Why? Why are you allowing this? Show yourself. Do something. These type of questions, these type of assertions, you don't ask them. You feel them. You gut them. They're not simply thoughts. They're reality that's grown out of us. There's this guy named Jacob in the Bible, and one night this angel visits him, and they wrestle each other all night long. Might have been God, might have been an angel, we're not really sure, but they wrestle all night long. And after that night, God changes his name, Jacob's name, to Israel. You know what Israel means? It does not mean blessed. It does not mean favored. It does not mean leader. It means struggle. Israel is the one who struggles with the divine struggles with the ultimate reality at the depths of his being, in his bones. And at that depth, you can't intellectualize things. You can't make sense, actually. You can only feel. Suffering is something textured through your feelings. It's painted. It's sung. It's danced. It's groaned out. The South American Indians have this phrase, You must make room in yourself, within yourself, for the immensities of the universe. You must make room within yourself for the immensities of the universe. They're going to hit you, so receive them. You feel them. You make room inside yourself for them. What does it feel like, that empty, hollow, haunting pain in your gut, in your chest, when you encounter great suffering? It's like it expands you through torture. You make room for the suffering in your soul. You create space for it to exist inside you. Now, some refuse to struggle. They refuse to make room for the suffering. They deny it. They avoid it. They cling to religion. Anything to avoid the depths of reality, the depths of suffering down in their bones. Others want to numb it or self-medicate. Whatever you do, just check out. Take something that will distract you from your pain. Hide it. Escape it. Cover it up. Whatever you do, don't actually allow yourself to feel this. Or the opposite extreme, some some never stop struggling. Those people who never stop bringing up what happened to them. They can't move on from it. Like what they went through hit this giant pause button in their life. And now they're stuck where they are. When you actually allow yourself to feel suffering, when when you make space For it in you, it enlardens you. It widens your spirit. When you let emptiness break you open until your heart includes even this pain, you make room in yourself for the immensities of the universe. And one of the greatest immensities is suffering. Jesus shows us with Lazarus, his good friend has been swallowed by death, and it grieves him. So he feels it. He opens himself up and he allows the suffering to overwhelm him and he weeps. You ever seen anybody weep? Not cry. You ever seen anybody weep? Jesus weeps over the death of his friend. What is Jesus demonstrating for us? When you find that your heart is going to break, let it. Every last piece. Feel it because it's hard for a heart to grow bigger in the midst of suffering unless you let it rupture. So you allow yourself to shatter open. You make room within yourself so that you can, in the end, transcend it. You don't leave what happened behind you. That thing you went through, that trauma, that suffering, that awful thing. You can never actually leave it behind you because it's now part of you. It has helped mold you into something that you currently are. So what do we do with it? With the help of grace, we transcend it, and we include it in our story. It's now part of our story. Often with suffering, people want to go back to the way it was before. If I could just go back to the, thing, the way things were. You don't go back when it comes to suffering. You go through You have to go through suffering, otherwise it never stops haunting you. It never stops sucking the life out of you. Any articulate worldview must have something to say about suffering. Not superficial, not stock, but something resounding and true and honest. In fact, this is what all the great world religions actually do. They make sense and they give space and meaning for suffering because everyone experiences it in some way or another. Don't worry, be happy. Bobby McFerrin, love the song, right? I love this song. But it's a destructive way to live your life. Because it essentially says just pretend that everything is fine. No, don't pretend like everything is fine. Make space inside yourself for the pain, for the sorrow. And then you can actually live like things are fine. Not out of denial, but because you went through it. And you came out the other side, and you have surpassed that agony. So if you want to come out more whole, you have to go through. And if you can do that, which you can, you feel it, you make room for yourself in it. You allow Jesus to help you transcend it. Here's what you find. At some point down the road, you meet someone going through something similar, something awful, something destructive, something agonizing, something that reminds you of your story, your pain, your anguish, and it brings all that back up for you. But you don't cringe. You don't awkwardly change the subject. You don't leave the room. You look them in the eyes and you say, me too. I stand with you. That person is feeling alone in a cold, dark universe, wondering if anybody in the world can relate or empathize to them. But you hear their suffering, and you linger. And in that moment, you have become a channel of healing love for them. The divine is now flowing through you, and you will know that you have transcended your suffering. There's a select group of people I know who have this certain buoyancy about them kind of like a a copious joy, not a plastic joy, like this deeper, like, bass note joy that just holds. And they hold everything with this centered, grounded spirit. And often these people, if you ask into their life, if you ask into their story, the extraordinary souls, something happened to them. Deep pain, profound suffering, a hard crash, it's the story I've heard over and over and over. People suffer, and instead of burying it, the great ones, they walk or they crawl through it. They feel their pain, they suffer, they grieve, they agonize, they make room inside themselves for this, in, this immensity, this anguish, and then they transcend it. The only way to transcend is going through. At the end of the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel, he walks away with a limp. He walks away limping. The divine being touches his hip and he walks with a a limp for the rest of his life. And Jewish rabbis say, yes, he walks away limping but he's limping because he experienced the divine. There's a certain limp you get when you experience the divine in life. A particular sober, sincere way that you now see the world. You've seen what the world can do. You've seen what people are capable of. You see what kind of pain comes with just being human, and it's easy to let it crush you. It's easy to get cynical. It's easy to to let that take away every reason to get up in the morning. But the real art of life is to see all that and to feel it. Not stuff it, not avoid it, not numb it, or hide yourself in your work so you can stay ahead of it but to feel it, to make room for it in yourself so now that you can, you, you now contain the summation of all your life experiences. You make room within yourself for the immensities in the universe. And when you do that, which may take a while, you transcend that experience and you include it. You will not leave it behind. It'll be a part of you. It'll be an integrated part of you. And you won't be longing to go back to the way things were because you've gone through it to the other side. You're limping, but you're limping because you've experienced the divine. I want to bring the worship team back up. We're going to go into a a time of response and worship through song. I know this is touching a deep part in some of you right now. I can see it. I see it in your eyes. So we're going to respond to what God's doing, not to just a talk that you heard, God's doing something in your heart and I want you to pay attention to that. At the heart of how I understand the world and what I think the Lazarus story portrays so powerfully is suffering does not get the last word. It's real. It's awful. It's excruciating. It's beyond words, but it is not the last word. It does not have the final say. Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die. In fact, he stayed where he was longer. So the miracle wouldn't be a healing from sickness, but a resurrection from death. When you hang around Jesus, death does not get the last word. Jesus gets the last word. To translate this story to our story, we're still in the part of the narrative where Lazarus is dead. The village is weeping, there's confusion, there's agony. We can't see the end game beyond we just lost our brother and whatever that the death of Lazarus represents for your story or for our country or for our world. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And what we see in the story is that Jesus doesn't belittle their grieving. He honors it. In fact, so much so that he includes himself in it. He weeps. I believe Jesus looks at our world today and is grieving with us. The injustice. The division. The hunger. The violence. The sickness. The abuse. I believe Jesus is weeping over the vandalism of his shalom. I believe he is weeping over sin, breaking apart his beautiful destruction. Creation. It's destroying the wholeness for which it was built. But he also knows the end of the story. And scripture tells us he's going to redeem all of it. He's going to redeem humanity. He's going to redeem creation. He's going to redeem the whole thing. He's going to make it whole again. Sin and death will not get the last say. Jesus will bring dead things to life. That's what he does. Through faith in the person of Jesus, he gives us strength to transcend our suffering. So whatever you're going through today, whatever you're grieving over today, whether your own pain or someone you know or someone across the globe, let the pain enlarge you rather than make you bitter and smaller. Resolve to not let it close you down, but open you up. Decide that it won't harden your heart, but that it'll soften you so that the entry point of your wound can be precisely the place through which God's love can flow through you. That another can know that they're not alone, that this thing will not destroy them, that this will not have the last word. How do we respond to suffering? We open ourselves to it. We feel it. We weep over it like Jesus does. We let it expand us. And then we allow Jesus to take us beyond it, to transcend it, giving us new life, new power, resurrection power. So Jesus, we call on you for help. Some of us need help in even acknowledging our pain and our suffering right now. Some of us have buried deep stuff. I pray for strength to allow that stuff to bubble up and to be brought before you, Lord, in your presence, at your feet. I don't know exactly what you're doing in the room right now with with hearts, God, but I pray that during this time of response worship that you would bring dead things to life, that you would redeem that you would make whole the destruction and the anguish that's been caused God, we need you we need you so bad, God, even to respond well to our suffering, we need you So we submit all this at your feet, God. We ask for more faith, to trust you as you redeem things like you do. We ask this in faith, faith Jesus, in your name.